time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty. Welcome back to the Cold War podcast, episode two twenty eight. Uh, Papa Bear, how how goes it in uh, the land of the uh, virgins? Uh, great. By the time everybody hears this, we will have seen Jerry Seinfeld live. Looking forward to that. He's doing two shows tomorrow in Richmond. I don't know about you, Cam, but when I'm a multimillionaire. I won't do anything twice in one day. That's just, that's going to be in my contract. But I guess you get in, you make as much money as you can, and you get out. Um, I'm a little surprised by that, but we're looking forward to it, and we hope to have a blast. Didn't you have a mass shooting at a Walmart yes. in Virginia recently? Yeah, in Northern Virginia. Is it not, the, no. not, your, not your old no, no, Walmart? No, 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 no. Nothing no. ever happened. The only thing that ever happened in the Walmart that I was in is occasionally birds would get in. And we would, and not joking, we'd have to go out to the sports part of the thing, grab a whole bunch of nets and chase it around. Tons of fun. Let me tell you. And it happened on a regular basis. So I wore my running shoes. That was the highlight of my Walmart career. Was the best time. Anyway. So let's, uh, oh, you asked me how I was. I'm good, thank you, Ray. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a weird time here in Brisbane. Uh, it's supposed to be the first day or yesterday of summer, right. and I was wearing my winter clothes for the first time this year. It was cold and rainy. I was wearing. Uh, it's all fucked up. We didn't have a winter in winter this year. We're having it in summer. Right. Thank you, climate change. Makes no sense. Um. In our last episode uh, of this here uh, little podcast, yeah. we were talking about we we're talking about the creation of NATO. We were talking about how um, the British and the French had been trying yeah. to manipulate the US into promising them military support um, because they, particularly in France and Italy and places like that, they and Greece, they had yes. um, very active and popular socialist movements. Yes. which uh, yes. uh, basically the, the, the French and the Italians had to crush. Yes. And even though they were democratically elected, they had to come up with pretext excuses to get rid of them out of government because it was part mm. of the American conditions. If you want our cash, you've got, got to get rid of the commies. Uh, but still the US were reluctant to commit to military support oh. of Europe in peacetime uh, until... The communist coup d'etat in Czechoslovakia yes. in February 1948. So I said this time I want to start talking about Czechoslovakia. Obviously, the the the, the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia in 1948, very, very big deal when it comes to the Cold War. Um, in the previous 227 episodes of this podcast, we we haven't yet talked about this. No. Um, no. Probably one of the no. defining moments of, of the Cold War. So Right. Well, I find it interesting, just real quick, you and I and and the people in Washington, all the main characters of Washington, they're going on and on and on and on about, about Europe's economic problems. Here's some money, here's some, here's some money, here's some money. We're not going to do the military thing. Fuck you. Here's some money. Take care of your own problems. Show us some kind of backbone or show us that you're an adult, that you can take care of some of your own problems. Here's the money. You're not getting our military. And then suddenly this comes along. Oh, Again, I guess the money is not all that important if the communists running the government. So America now realizes, yeah, no, you were right. Something's going to happen. Everybody now has their wake-up call. This is a real problem. This is real. So let's talk about Czechoslovakia. Let's see if we can learn how to say it. Czechoslovakia. Right. Um, created in 1918, mm-hmm. when it declared its independence from Austria-Hungary. Yes. And around the start of the 20th century, this idea of a Czechoslovak uh, entity began to be advocated by some Czech and Slovak leaders after mm-hmm. contacts between them sort of... Um, uh, between their intellectuals happened more and more in the late 1800s. And, you know, we've mm-hmm. seen this in, in other episodes and in, in the bullshit filter and in this show. Like, uh, 
the the this sense of national identity that was rising again in the late 19th century, particularly in the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. There were these Mm -hmm. countries that were these peoples, uh, different ethnicities, different religious traditions. You know, uh, we've seen it happen with, uh, you know, we've talked about Yugoslavia. We talked in the bullshit filler about Syria. We've talked about Iraq and Afghanistan. We've talked about Iran. You know, you had all of these countries where there were these movements of people who wanted some yeah. independence. They wanted uh, to be able to practice their traditions and then protect their languages and their, their, yeah. their culture. Um, and in this case, despite fairly significant um, cultural tr- uh, differences, the Slovaks right. and the Czechs uh, both wanted independence from the Habsburg state and the, the thinking was if they joined together they probably had a stronger chance of swinging this. Nothing will, uh, I'm sorry, just nothing will inspire you to independence or to seize an opportunity like being oppressed for hundreds of years. So you're you're right, their identity is being lost. They're just a small part of a much larger empire. But yeah, being being, uh, suppressed will help reinforce your identity and your desire to be able to act on that and live the way you want to live. And so World War I comes along. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is having a hard time. They're breaking up. And like you said, these two groups see their opportunity. They haven't had for hundreds of years, and they're going to make the most of it. And World War I presents them with a strategic opportunity to right. uh, crack it open and also get support from the Allies, the way that they did that was they formed a volunteer legion. 90,000 Czech and Slovak volunteers formed the uh, Czechoslovak legions uh, in Russia, France, and Italy, where they fought against the Central Powers, Mm -hmm. and later they fought with the white Russian forces against the Bolshevik troops uh, after the Russian Revolution. So... Um, yeah, which is all part of this too. I mean, the Russian Revolution is is all part of not really an independence movement as such as, you know, uh, part of this um, nationalist uh, movement where people wanted more say over their country and more, you know, want to get rid of the the royalty, the ro- uh, the royal family, the czars. Yeah, I, I read the best thing I was. It was 1918, and revolution was in the air all over Europe. And you're right. And people are seeing an opportunity and they are, this is their chance. They are seizing the brass ring of freedom and or independence. Oh, captain, my captain. They were all chanting to (laughs) seize the day. Um, (laughs) Now, as I said, these Czech and Slovak uh, volunteers fought against the Bolsheviks. So Mm -hmm. this gives you uh, a bit of an insight into the relationship of Czechoslovakia and Stalin from the get go. They ah, they point. tried they yeah, the Czech Czechoslovak troops mm-hmm. um, tried to uh, stop or, or, or prevent the Bolshevik Revolution from happening. They got involved in Russia's affairs. They tried to uh, uh, throw their weight behind right. the the czars, the the white forces in the Russian Revolution. So you can well imagine that the uh, the the Bolsheviks didn't yeah. didn't didn't think too highly about the Czechs as a result. A little of that. miffed, you, yeah. A little miffed. You tried to yeah. fuck with our revolution, well, right? You know, yeah. uh, as there's an old um, uh, Klingon saying, <laughs> "Revenge is a dish best served cold." Right. And, oh, I thought you uh, were going to say that fucking can go both ways. I like yours yours better. Now, the new state was founded by a couple of guys. Uh, The most prominent was Tomas Garrige Masaryk. You sure it wasn't Stan and Barry? Well, they were the thinkers behind it, of course. They plotted all of these independence movements. Sorry. Sorry. Um, Masaryk served as the first president from... November 1918 through to December 1935. Damn. Now, they did have okay. term limits on right. the presidency, but didn't Not apply him. to him. He's, he's that good. He got a pass. He got it. Well, he was he was beloved by the people, so, yeah. Hmm. And for good pass. reason. He seems like, yeah. a, seems like a mensch. The um, real deal. 
He was the real deal. He was the real deal, yeah. He travelled to the United States in 1918 where he convinced Woodrow Wilson uh, to support uh, their independence movement, Um, unlike Ho Chi Minh, who also asked Wilson to support Vietnam's independence. I I wonder what was different Mm. uh, between Mm. the two gentlemen. I, Mm. I I can't put my finger on it. When so when Masaryk, um, uh, you know, said his letter to Wilson, Wilson replied and said, "Hold on, how slanty are your eyes and what colours your skin? <laughs> oh, you're you're white. I'm not, I've never Good. been to, never Good been to, to Czechoslovakia. To uh, are you white? Yeah. Uh, you, uh, yeah. you're, you're good. White then. Is you, white. you get independence. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> you a, get independence, and you get in. You slanty do not get. No, sorry, there's this there's sorry. this Mormon uh, term, um, white and delightsome. Uh, I've never heard of that. God offended. When people were good uh, in the eyes of the Lord, he made their skin white and delightsome, according to the Book of Mormon. And Chrissy and I use that all the time. We (laughs) we pull out the whole there. You know something's good if it's white and delightsome. Um, Black. You make them darker when they're being bad. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's actually, that's legitimately Mormon theology. In the Book of Mormon, it says that um, the thing is the Lamanites, oh. the Lamanites uh, did something bad in the eyes of the Lord, so he made their skin dark so they would be cursed forever. He, he blackened so them. Yeah, yes. that's where the darkies come from. Oh, for fuck's sake. Mm. Anyway, I'm but sorry, if they're good, if yeah. they, yeah. if they are good, this is actually right. this isn't. I think Book of Mormon. I think this is Brigham Young's speeches. Guy who took over from Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, he told stories about dark-skinned children that right. were adopted by white Mormon families and started going to Mormon church, and then their skin color started to lighten <laughs> because Sweet. God was making them more white and delightsome. That's science. Uh, That's fucking. <laughs> it's Mormon straight science. Up. That's fucking <laughs> Mormon. <laughs> Oh, Mormons. Instead of showing me the right way, please, dear God, show me the white way. Yeah, well, they're the same thing. Oh, okay. You, white I is right. I stand corrected. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so Ho Chi Minh, uh, Wilson That's said, it. go fuck yourself. But Masaryk he liked. Now, Masaryk, uh, again, right. as opposed to Ho Chi Minh, had very high-level U.S. contacts. Um, yes. On May 5th, 1918, when he went to Chicago, 150,000 people came out to God welcome him dang. in the streets. Chicago was the center of Czechoslovak immigration to the United States, oh. but he had also held a professorship at the University yes. of Chicago in 1902, 1907. Mm-hmm. He was married to an American woman and, and took her took her maiden name as his middle name, Garagay. That's right. Charlotte Garagay. He, he knows what to do. He knows the game. And he was good friends with Chicago industrialist Charles R. Crane. Not to be confused with Charles Foster Kane from Citizen Kane. This is Charles R. Crane. Possibly a cousin. He had Masaryk invited to the University of Chicago and introduced him to the highest political circles in Chicago and Washington, including to Woodrow Wilson. Crane, by the way, not only a big fan of Masaryk, also a big fan of a guy by the name of Adolf Hitler. Oh, as all uh, good American industrialists uh, tended to be in the thirties, um, well, Masaryk uh, was well educated, spoke several languages, traveled a lot. So did Ho Chi Minh, but he had that one, mm, that one little skin thing uh, going on. But yeah, b- both very dedicated, both very educated, traveled the world, very passionate about taking care of their people. One got the Americans' help, one did not. Sorry, please continue. Back to Crane, uh, yes. Masaryk's uh, number one g- fan. When right. Roosevelt appointed William Dodd as the American ambassador to Germany in 1933, mm-hmm. replacing Henry Ford, I think. Right. Was it a Ford? Was Ford? No, it was a no. It was a Bush. No, Ford was just a big supporter. Um, it was a Bush or a Walker that had been a, the ambassador who was a big saying. Oh, Hitler, 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 here's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. Well, Kennedy was a f- fan. Oh, it was Joe Kennedy. That's who Kennedy, it was. Yeah. Joe yeah, Kennedy. Ambassador to the UK. 
Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, when Dodd was appointed ambassador to Germany in 1933, mm-hmm. Crane wrote Dodd a letter of congratulations and said, the Jews, after winning the war, galloping along at a swift pace, getting Russia, England and Palestine, being caught in the act of trying to seize Germany too and meeting their first real rebuff, have gone plumb crazy and are deluging the world, particularly easy America, with anti-German propaganda. I strongly advise you to resist every social invitation. Jeez, you can't see it, but my eyeballs have scraped the ceiling. That's how hard I'm rolling them right now. Absolutely preposterous. Jews are taking over the world. And we do have to say that Masaryk was... To a degree, anti-Semite. He did think that they controlled the press around the world. So he's not perfect, but when it comes to his country and his people, class act. Ambassador Dodd said that Crane at a dinner um, told him that he had no objection to how the Nazis were treating Germany's Jews and told Dodd, let Hitler have his way. That was Crane's view on Hitler. Um, but in 1918, Masaryk's Czechoslovakia accepted Jews of all ideological and national backgrounds. There were Jews who identified themselves as Czechs, as Germans, as right. Hungarians, or just as Jews in both right. a national and a religious sense, and that was okay. So this is like one of the first times in Europe you had a country where Jews could just say, well, actually, we're Jews. <laughs> just, and they were like, oh, yeah. that's all right then. You yeah. go, go, yeah. go be a Jew. That's fine. Good on you. During the 1920s and 30s, Jews in Czechoslovakia had considerable freedom, um, independent cultural and national development. But, as you pointed out, according to Czech historian Jan Lanacek, the great philosopher and humanist Masaryk was still using the same anti-Semitic tropes found at the bottom of all anti-Jewish accusations. Right. Masaryk had been brought up in a traditional Christian household with stories about Jews kidnapping Christian children and killing them for ritual sacrifice. And and he admitted later in life that he never overcame his emotional anti-Semitism, but he had overcome it intellectually, but he still emotionally yeah, uh, yeah, feared and and I guess hated the Jews at some level. Probably makes him a fairly typical European progressive um, or intellectual for his time. Yeah. I think. Learn as he went. Yeah. Yeah, like Very we've strong. talked about this on our shows over the years. Like uh, Germany cops a lot, but the entire world was mostly oh. anti-Semitic in the thirties and forties. And the state, the U.S. State Department was replete. With anti-Semitism. So, yeah, very common. It was, I don't want to be crass and say it was in vogue, but it was certainly more than acceptable in, in most parts of in Western, uh, well, the Western world. It hadn't been in vogue for 700 yeah, yeah. years, you know, yeah, since yeah, Christianity but, took over the world. Right. But at this time, it certainly is no big deal and no one's going to bat an eye. Yeah, but Masaryk uh, ran a state where the Jews were not only accepted but given considerable freedom. It was, yes. you know, they, they were still trying to take over Palestine at this stage. They were the early stages of taking over Palestine. But in Czechoslovakia, they had a safe landing ground uh, for a little while. Yes. Uh, now, Masaryk had become famous uh, due to his public defense of a guy that was accused of blood libel. Um, we've talked about this on our shows in the past, but one of these, one of the, the, the age-old stories that would go around about the Jews in European countries would the Jews would kill Christians, particularly Christian children, to use their blood yeah. and ritual sacrifices. Sounds right. This was this is usually the um, excuse for some sort of a Jewish pogrom. Uh, right. Whenever you needed to distract the public, uh, these days you say, "Oh, Vladimir Putin's uh, gone mad." <laughs> Um, back in those days you said oh the Jews are murdering our children to use their blood and their pies and it was an excuse to go take the Jews shit usually exactly because they worked hard and they were fluent and they uh, saved and yeah yeah Easy, easy targets. Oh, we'll go take their houses. We'll go take their bank accounts. Take their exactly. businesses. 
just you know it was just an excuse for oppressing the Jews. Exactly. But in 1899, uh, a poor Jewish peddler in, in um, the, the the Czech part of uh, Austria Hungary, Leopold mm-hmm. Hilsner was right. accused of murdering a Christian girl for blood. He was convicted and received life imprisonment. Now, Masaryk at the time was a professor of philosophy at the uh, Charles Ferdinand University and a publisher. He had a magazine he'd founded called Athenaeum, dedicated to Czech culture and science. He was very mm. he was very pro science. Uh, yes, uh, he would not do well today. But yes, uh, very Masaryk. <laughs> Yeah. Now, uh, so he came out in his defense um, and, and argued against blood libel as being a superstition. Um, uh, you know, putting his reputation and his public prof- profile at risk in, in right. doing so because anti Semitism yes. obviously was still quite popular. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't help Hilsner. Hilsner still spent about 20 years in prison, but Masaryk's defense of him won him wide acclaim from Jews, as you would imagine, uh, right. around the world, particularly among American Jews mm-hmm. who were big fans of his. And um, in 1907, he was invited to be the first speaker uh, at the Free Synagogue on 81st Street in New York. Wow. And, uh, you know, that was part of him building his network of contacts in the United States, which led to him being a guest lecturer at the University of Chicago. And he became very close with people like uh, Judge Louis Brandeis, leaders of the Zionist organization in the United States, American Mm -hmm. Jewish politicians, they they were all big supporters of his and were putting in you know a good word for him um, with Woodrow right. Wilson. Nice, yeah, because he needed the president's help. Sorry. In October 1918, Masaryk wrote to one of his colleagues, Edward Benes. Right. Uh, he they'd both been in exile during the First World War. Benes later became um, the Czech foreign minister and then later the president. Took mm-hmm. over from Masaryk. Right. But uh, Masaryk wrote to him in 1918 and he said, um, Hilsner helped us a lot. Zionists and other Jews have publicly accepted our program. So Ooh. his defense of Hilsner uh, had uh, opened all of these doors to powerful right. Jews uh, in the United States. Um, so... He believed in the, the, the power of the American Jews and the press. And mm-hmm. um, in a conversation with famous Czech writer Karel Čapek, he suggested that the world press was partly managed by Jews and their sympathies with the Czechoslovak cause during the First World War had helped him tremendously. So this is getting back to these anti-Semite tropes. Right. Um, he believed that... as, as uh, Dave Chappelle said uh, on his in his SNL monologue defending Kanye, not defending Kanye, but explaining Kanye, yeah. is like, <laughs> to think that the Jews control most of the media isn't crazy. To say it out loud, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Masaryk did both. Um, he did. Back then yes. you could get away with it. Um, Later on, he repeated the same story, but then he said they only partly managed the world press. And and he said they had a great influence on newspapers in all the allied countries. Um, So, you know, he he was good to the Jews in Czechoslovakia, but he also believed that the Jews were a force that could be used. I mean, I guess, you know, he, he defended Hilsner, that led to him getting Jewish support in America. That led to him being able to establish Czechoslovakia with American support. And then yes. he was good to the Jews in Czechoslovakia because they had helped him, um, you know, win independence, support for independence yeah. for his country. Make connections. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it goes around, comes around, right? Exactly. Good or um, bad. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, Jews living even in America at the time were seen as Jews, not Americans. 
you know, they were perceived as being their own thing, which is, you know, largely their own doing. I mean, that's part of their own cultural uh, tradition is to set themselves apart and, and, and stay within their community. But, um, you know, he, he really accepted them into this new Czechoslovakia. But um, he was re-elected then three times, May 1920, 1927, 1934. He was allowed an unlimited number of terms because he was the uh, founder. He resigned from office on the 14th of December 1935 because of old age and poor health and was succeeded by Edward Benes. Um so do you want to talk about some of the progress that they made in those early years? I know you've got some research on that. Yeah, I, I found this very uh, uh, interesting and inspiring at the same time. So here's these people. They've been, um, they've been suppressed for 300 years. They finally get their chance. They're, they're going to form their own government. And of course, and, and you've made this point billions of times, but when you have a group of people who aren't used to running themselves and then they run themselves, yeah, they're going to make mistakes. But as we're going to see, they got a lot of things right. Um, they had... Um, Within their within their borders, they had obviously they had Germans, they had Jews, they had others. But within their constitution, they're going to build in certain rights for these people. So it's so it's almost like well, we know what it's like to be suppressed. So we're going to make sure that those within our borders are going to be taken care of to a certain uh, certain way. There's there were two point roughly two point five million Germans in 1918 within their borders, and they said, uh, "You're a minority, but you're important to us, and so we're going to to, to guarantee your rights." Um, the other thing that I liked about their government was that it was always a coalition government. No one party was allowed to completely dominate the government again because they didn't trust any kind of strong power sources. So at first they have local elections to um, vote in delegates, and then those delegates are going to have proper elections and they're going to form their uh, their constitution. So their first elections for parliament were in April of 1920. Uh, most of the winners come in uh, left of center. There's no communist party in this country yet. There's social democrats uh, who have communists within their party, but um, the social democrats are able to win 74 seats in the chamber of deputies. So again, it is a left-leaning government, but not communist. Another party was called the Agrarian Party, made up of small and middle-sized farmers. But uh, truth be told, they were controlled by a powerful interest groups. They win 40 seats uh, in the first election. So again, they're a force to be reckoned with, but no one party is dominating uh, anything. Um, the third largest party at the time was the Czechoslovak uh, National Socialist, again, left of center. So you can see a trend here where we're not communist, but we're not conservative. We're left of center. And when we do build our country, when we do create our constitution, there's going to be a lot of safeguards. We're going to take care of the people. Um, we're, we're going to put that into the very fabric that is our constitution and it, that is our government. There were two German minority parties who were respected. A third one comes along. They win a couple of seats, but they're not suppressed. They're not treated bad. They're just like, yeah, you're, you're a part of us. You're German, but you know, welcome into our government. You, you can have your say as well. There are 300 members of the Chamber of Deputies and the communists uh, at their peak, get like 30 seats within this 300-member chamber of deputies. But then it goes goes down from there because their, their constitution is solid, their government is solid, and during the interwar years, all the countries around them fall from being uh, democracies, you know, but obviously uh, Germany and, then, and Italy and things like that, but they are the only country in their part of Europe to, re- to remain a democracy up until World War II. So whatever they were doing, they were doing it right. Unfortunately, when the Great Depression comes along, and we've seen this with other countries, the German-speaking people within their country don't feel like they're being treated very well. They don't feel like they're getting enough help from the, from the, uh, from the government. The government tries to, to, um, to help them, but Nazis from Germany come along and, and kind of stoke them up. They kind of work them up, saying, you're not being treated very well. So this becomes a problem for their government. And of course, Hitler's going to take advantage of this and, and uh, you know, capture the, take over the Sudetenland, but that, but that comes later. Um, what, what I found interesting, so keep in mind that they're not communists, they're just left-leaning. When they come into power in 1918, 
most of the land is owned by very few people. There was like 1,000 people or 1,000 families that owned 20, 26% of the entire land. What does the government do? Uh, it says, okay, we have to make reforms. We've seen this with Ho Chi Minh. We've seen this with Mao. We've seen this with others. What they do is they say, if there's any country, if there's any family, or if there's a person that has more than 150 hectares or 370 acres of arable land, you got to give some of that away. The government is going to compensate you, but we're going to take some of that because it's not fair. And to be honest, you probably got it through foul means. Anyway, we're going to compensate you for that. We're going to take that from you and we're going to spread it out to these small farmers. What ends up happening is that these small farmers, because they're given land, become a powerful political entity on their own. And they are the most conservative within the uh, within the government. But again, they're not conservative. They're still center uh, or just left of center. And you'll enjoy this part, Cam. So a lot of the small farmers who get this land start up their own cooperative movement. So even, even this, what we would consider liberal, but they would consider conservative, they come up with the idea of let's pool our resources, let's pool our land. I own this, you own that, but let's work together. It's real. It's this real sense of community. So this country is humming along for years. They build up their industry. They take care of their people. They have all these rights for the people. Um, and everything is going along pretty well. The countries around them are falling apart because of the uh, Great Depression, but not Czechoslovakia. They have their act together. They have their act together, but um, like a lot of these new states that were created uh, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the mm -hmm. Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, or the, the Russian um, Empire, you know, they, there was problems of ethnic diversity, separate histories of the Czech and the Slovak peoples, right. <clears throat> greatly differing religious, cultural and social traditions, much, as I said before, like Yugoslavia, like Syria, like Iraq, these countries that have formed after World War I, mm -hmm. uh, in some cases where people like Churchill just drew a line on a map and said, right, this is now a country, I don't give a right. fuck. If you're on this side of the line, you're part of this. If you're on that side of the line, you're part of that country. Yeah, congratulations. Um, Syria, Palestine, etc., etc. Um, you smash together people of different traditions mm -hmm. and say, "Well, you're all countrymen now. Good luck." Yeah, and uh, you know, there's always going to be tensions in those sorts of situations. Sometimes they fester for a long time before they mm -hmm. explode, or uh, before they're manipulated by uh, external parties uh, uh, who are looking to influence the government of a certain country, you know, one of the ways of doing that, this is um, you know, particularly the CIA's uh, tactic, is you, you find the minority that you think is uh, feeling oppressed or mm -hmm. feeling like they uh, don't have enough power, don't have enough say, and you you support them and you try and turn them into a some sort of a destabilising revolutionary force inside of the country. Right. Um, so this was the this was the case in Czechoslovakia, and as you said, the Germans were three million out of fourteen million of the population in the interwar right. period in Czechoslovakia. So you know the Germans are a fairly significant part of the population. Um, what's that? Uh, twenty twenty percent, ten percent mm -hmm. would be one and a half million. So yeah. 20% of the population are Germans, mostly concentrated in the Bohemian and Moravian border regions known as Sudetenland in right. German. Right. Western, um, yeah. Now, the, the, the German nationalist minority in Czechoslovakia were led by a guy called Konrad Heinlein, mm -hmm. um, who then, under Robert Heinlein, wrote a bunch of very uh, popular uh, science fiction uh, uh, novels, but back in these days when he was Conrad, he was just a uh, nationalist leader. Big, right. big fan of Hitler. And right. he demanded a union of the predominantly German districts of ah. the country with Germany. Right. Uh, it's a little bit like um, what's been happening in Ukraine since 2014 in the Donbass region. You know, mm -hmm. the, the separatist movement there wanting to pull away, away from Ukraine yeah. because they're mostly Russian or a large percentage mm -hmm. of the population are Russian. They wanted to, um, you know, at least have their independence or become part of Russia. Similar thing happening in uh, Sudetenland in the late 1930s. 
Can I can I give you? I don't know if you ran across this, but in some ways, the formation, the creation, and the early years of Czechoslovakia was almost a social experiment. Now, you and I have done enough shows to know that the average person would say, "Oh, the reason." communism can grow or flourish or even begin in a country is because of economic bad times. Things have gone bad. The people aren't happy. They want a a more fair distribution of, of, of the resources, whatever. So what happens is this country is formed. They, they strive mightily, even though it's not perfect to treat everybody as decent as they can. No one gets too much power, no group, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, they're not suffering as bad as the other countries are, even after the Great Depression. Things, things are doing okay. But the communists never kind of get hold. And you could argue, even though I can't prove this, that things were good and so you don't need to uh, form a communist party. But by 1935, when um, a lot of countries are still struggling, America certainly st- still struggling with the, the Great Depression, the communist party, which does come along eventually... Uh, at, at at the peak of the national elections, they get like 25%, uh, 25% of the people vote for the Communist Party. Now, what makes it interesting is that the government says, if you want to be communist, be communist. We don't care, but we still have the rules. We still have the regulations. We still have the limits. Like you were saying, the president or the prime minister can only have two terms. They have it set up so no one party can completely dominate um, uh, the government, no matter how big they are, because you get a set number of seats. So here's a country where the Communist Party grows to a certain degree, but there's really not economic bad times driving them. It's just these people choose to be communist. And again, the government is like, that's fine with us. Just don't start no shit and everything will be fine. And so for the communist, um, you're talking, again, a very small percentage out of the 14.5 million checks, but the, but the government just runs with it. They don't really care. They're not a threat. This is not France. This is not Italy. They're just going with it. And I just thought that was a very interesting uh, um, kind of side issue. There's communists. It's growing. It's only going to get so big, but they're not a threat. And here's why, because here's, here's what the Constitution of Czechoslovakia has in 1919. Keep this in mind. It's a brand new country. These people have been oppressed for 300 years. Within the first year of their constitution, they say there's going to be social and health insurance. There's going to be retirement plans. There's going to be paid vacation. There's going to be other guarantees. And this is going to be by law. And this is within the first five months of their creating a constitution in a country. It's 2022. And America doesn't even have half that shit. You have to work at a job to get insurance. If I go out and get insurance for myself, it's $800 a month. Guess what? I can't afford that. So they were sincere in trying to take care of their people back in 1919, probably because they were oppressed for hundreds of years by the by the Habsburgs. So again, I do find that very interesting. And your gentleman, Marzarek, who comes along, he is just someone who... And I, I, what little I read about him, and you could probably tell me more, he was obsessed with facts. He was obsessed with science. He was obsessed with what works. And so when he comes into this country, and I think his religion, was he Protestant? And the rest of the country was, I can't, I can't remember, but there was a lot about him that kind of went counter to what was going on in the country, but they loved him so much that he was a good leader. They kept electing him over and over again, changing the rules just for him so he could be president up until the point where his health says, no, you have to step down at this point. Mm. There's yeah, a lot to admire. Both um, Masaryk and Benes were philosophers, well, there we go. There we Masaryk go. was professor of philosophy. Uh, Benes studied philosophy um, at Charles Ferdinand University in Prague as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he went to the Sorbonne in Paris, uh, at, uh, studied at the Independent School uh, for Political and Social Studies there. Right. So uh, you've got two philosophers that are uh, determining the, the government and the the. the the, the yeah. course of uh, the constitution for the country. Um, pro-science philosophers. And again, keeping in mind, 1918, so Russian Revolution is still bedding down after 1917. Yes. Um, this is 
uh, you know, one of the first experiments in creating a new uh, country, a more enlightened mm-hmm. uh, country with enlightened laws and looking after people, etc., based, I think, somewhat uh, on what Napoleon had done in France uh, 100 years they, earlier. They did borrow from the French and American constitutions and other examples uh, throughout French and American history, yes. And, um, you know, it was, uh, uh, they were trying to build, like, uh, you know, the, the, the perfect country. Yeah. Based on their study of the United States and France, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Benes mm. um, did a lot of traveling uh, before he formed the government. And, um, you know, he, he said that he found Germany to be repulsive and an empire of force and power after visiting Berlin. This is, you know, well before Hitler. This right. is in the early 1920s, around the time of World War One. Um in, he spent a lot of time in London. He was actually in exile in London during World War Two. But even earlier, when he lived in London uh, before World War One, he said that the situation here is terrible, and so is life. Mm, um, but he loved Paris. He called Paris the city of light. Said it was. He found it to be almost miraculously a magnificent synthesis of modern civilization, of which France is the bearer. So. He was trying to uh, design a country along the lines of uh, the French Republic, I guess, Um, but even more so because the treatment of the Jews in France wasn't great. As we know, around this period, they were trying to do a much better job in their treatment of minorities. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talked about Conrad Heinlein and... uh, you know his his push for uh, pulling the Sudetenland uh, into Germany with all of their German citizens, and on the seventeenth of September, nineteen thirty-eight, Hitler orders orders the establishment of the Sudeten Deutsches Freikorps, right. a paramilitary organization that took over the structure of the Ordnungsgruppe which mm-hmm. was basically a bunch of ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia that had been dissolved <clears throat> by the Czechoslovak authorities the previous day due to um, its involvement in terrorist activities. Right. Um, so Hitler basically had this organisation sheltered and trained and equipped on the German side of the border, and yeah. then they would go across the border into Czechoslovakia to do uh, terrorist activities. Um yeah, 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 and you know, give an opportunity for false flag events like the burning yeah. of the Reichstag, uh, something that the Nazis were very familiar with. You know, you create a you create a terrorist event and say, "Oh, look, the terrorists yeah. are coming. We need to uh, shut down civil rights, basically." Or, or we need to. Take, you've probably seen uh, the the. I will never forget this. I was a very young man. Uh, well middle-aged man, but whatever, young compared to me now, when I watched video on YouTube of German, uh, German Czech women in, in front of the Nazi cameras talk about how they were uh, tr- very poorly treated by the Czech government, their husbands were hauled away, they were raped, just these complete fabrications, but it worked the German people up, and so Hitler was able to use that to eventually go in and take the Sudetenland, but again, yeah, it was a bunch of false flag operations, um, but then, and but that's what made it troubling for uh, the Czech government because the Germans early on, and this was before Hitler said, we should have the right to take our land that we live on, break away and join Germany. And the Czech government said, you can go to Germany anytime you want, but, but after being suppressed for hundreds of years, this is our country. We're not giving any part of it up. You can go, but you can't take this, this part of our country with you, which is what was perfect for Hitler for him to use later. So they again, they were like, we're not going to suppress you. We're not going to beat you. We're not going to arrest you. You can go, but you can't take part of our country with you. Again, they were, they were like you said, it was an experiment. They were doing the best they could, but their, their decent treatment, you could even call it naivete, was manipulated by others. And, of course, they eventually get gobbled up by the Nazis um, later on. 
Yeah, well, Hitler managed to get the um, other Europe, major European powers, Italy, France, and Britain to, <laughs> to say okay. Yeah, this is okay. to say yeah. Yeah. look, uh, I know the Czech don't want to give up. Czechs don't want to give up any land, but right. um, if you say it's okay, then I guess yeah. it's okay. Yeah. And, and so Hitler says, "This is the last time I will yeah. ask for anything. I promise." Any, Scout's yeah. honor. I don't know Scout. Yeah. I, I don't. Know. <laughs> I have no interest in <laughs> any more territorial gains. If you just yeah, give me yeah. Bohemian, Moravian, and Czech Silesian borderlands, then I'll go. Then I'm all I'm good. Yeah. And they signed the Munich Agreement, 29th right. of September, 1938. Germany, Italy, yeah. France, and Britain. Where yeah. Italy, France, and Britain said, "Listen, uh, don't get us wrong. We're all about uh, freedom-loving peoples and democracy." Uh, but in this case, yeah. uh, they that's don't a, actually get a, a say. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, I know we're probably going to end soon, and I'm not going to ruin anything, but I haven't read ahead as far as the actual the uh, communist coup or whatever the proper term is or what happens in Prague when they take over the country. I, I am fascinated, and I can't wait to learn, was it internal? Did it come from Moscow? Did they get help from people? So this should be really interesting because this is what triggers the United States to go, Oh, shit. Okay, no more dilly-dallying. I know George Washington said a couple of hundred years ago, but we have to have some kind of military agreement with these Europeans. This, this is what sets it off. And so I'm, I'm interesting, interested to see, was it truly just the people inside the country wanted it, or was there any outside influence? Or maybe was it a little of both? I'll certainly will be looking forward. You probably already know because you read ahead a lot. I'm certainly looking forward to, to finding out how that came about. That's why we're doing these shows, right? Yeah, so yeah, we can that's find how out how, yeah. how it came about. Exactly. So uh, part of the Munich Agreement was that the Czech population in these annexed lands were to be mm-hmm. forcibly expelled from their homes. Sounds right. Uh, the Czech government, abandoned by its allies, uh, basically were forced to abide by the agreement. Eduard Benez resigned as president of the Czechoslovak Republic on the 5th of October, 1938, and fled to London. Yeah, joined the crowd. Ten years later, about seven months after the communist coup, 1948, he died of natural causes at his villa, his life's work completely undone. Um, But, uh, yeah... In early November 1938, as a result of the Munich Agreement, Czechoslovakia was forced by Germany and Italy to cede southern Slovakia, one-third of Slovak territory, to basically Germany, Hungary. Mm -hmm. Um, After the ultimatum um, on the 30th of September, Poland obtained the Zalzi region, Mm-hmm. And in March of 1939, the first Slovak Republic proclaimed its independence, basically a Nazi puppet state. Right. And shortly afterwards, Hitler invaded Czechia and turned it into the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, basically making sure that he had control of uh, all of Czechoslovakia and Czechoslovakia disappeared. The last thing I'll say on that is, um, one, when he got the Sudetenland, that's where the Czech, because of geography, that's where the Czechs had a lot of their defensive structures set up. So when the Germans do go in, they don't have to fight through these formidable fortifications. They already had them. And there's a major industrial uh, plant that almost rivaled the Krupp works of Germany. The Germans also get their hands on that. So... Again, because the European nations would not stand up to Hitler, he gets so much out of the Munich Agreement. Mm. And, you know, this is where, you know, the the concept of the evils of appeasement come from, you know, right. talking exactly. with Putin and Ukraine. Back then, the, the leaders of particularly France and Britain, um, I don't think Mussolini cared that much, but the leaders of France and Britain were like, well, Hitler says if we don't let him have this little piece of land, he'll invade and take it all. So let's just give him what he wants and try and avoid another war because we just got out of the last one. We don't really want another one. 
um, let's just try and negotiate a diplomatic agreement. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it turned out that they were doing it with Hitler. So, you know. Let's, let's all say it together. Peace in our time. This idea of um, that appeasement is a negative thing, that a diplomatic solution to a territorial dispute uh, right. cannot be or should not be resolved through diplomacy is... This. Because of this is yeah. is an unfortunate outcome, I Absolutely. think. But uh, you know, it's become sort of a catchword now for uh, giving in uh, when you should fight is the Munich Agreement and appeasement. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's a, a good natural ending point for this episode. Czechoslovakia taken over by the Nazis in 1939. And uh, on the next episode, we'll talk about how you get from that to the communist coup d'etat in 1948. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.